Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. True Detective is back, and The Ringer's Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion are our guides as we navigate the twisting pathways of season three's plots, themes, and characters on The Flat Circle, a True Detective after show. Follow Jason and Chris as they chase down leads, explore each episode's cultural context, and discuss true crime cases that mirror the ones in the show. Join the guys live every Sunday night after True Detective on The Ringer's YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook pages. Welcome to GM Street, part of the Winger Podcast Network. It is Tuesday, January 15th, and we just wrapped up the divisional weekend, and I am joined on the line by the great Michael Lombardi. Lombardi, how you doing? Hey, Frazier, I'm doing awesome. I am doing so good. Life is good, you know? Life is good, and I'm happy to hear that. There are unfortunately some teams that lost this weekend, so things are not going as great. Uh, we got a lot of fallout that we're going to talk about. Uh, we're obviously going to talk about the Clapper, talk about Jerry Jones a little bit at the end of this podcast. But before we get into all the uh, the rumor mill that's going around uh, after the teams that have been eliminated, we're going to talk about, obviously, the games and how it all played out. And we're going to start with the New Orleans Saints and the Philadelphia Eagles. The Magic, the Philly Magic, was continuing to go on in this game. Started out pretty hot. Uh, Eagles get up 14-0 to in this game. Nick Foles seems to be uh, rolling, to say the least. Uh, the Saints battle back. Your boy, Taysom Hill, uh, with the big fourth down uh, on the punt. Uh, also had a big pass that was taken away, but we just saw a lot of uh, big plays from the Saints, a lot of Sean Payton uh, deciding to go for it when he can. Uh, you know, basically throwing it back in Doug Peterson's face, a guy not afraid to go for it on fourth down as well. But when you look at this game, Eagles come out hot, Saints respond, Saints end up getting a nice win, and obviously the Alshon Jeffrey play we'll talk about a little bit later. But first off, what were your thoughts on this game, Lombardi? Uh, what you what you saw from the Saints and obviously the end of the Philly run and the Philly Magic? Well, you know, I, I kept thinking of Matt Nagy during the game. I'm like, Matt, you did this to everybody. You let these bastards in. You know, like, here they are, and they got the, they, they're very, they're resilient they're a champion for a reason they fight their ass off and uh they're not going to go away and so when they got up 14 to nothing and drew Brees couldn't throw a completion i'm thinking shit this reminded me of the 2014 game when we got behind baltimore 14 to nothing quickly and knowing that baltimore was a good defense and philly you know the, the key to beating philly was you had to control the football you had to force their offense to not be on the field, and you had to wear their defense down. And the only way you do that is through time of possession, through converting third downs, through staying on the field. And so when they got up 14 nothing, I'm thinking, man, you know, Sean did all that preparation to get ready for the playoffs, and it's just all going to fall apart for them in a matter of seconds. And so, you know, they end up a third and eight. And the game really is in balance here, third and eight at the New Orleans 45-yard line, and Breeze gets sacked, fumbled. If Ramchek doesn't recover that ball, I, I mean, that's the play that they ruled. I don't know how the fuck they ruled it. I mean, they ruled it as possession and then turnover again. I mean, it had to be one of the worst calls of all time, right? To say, you yeah, know, they felt like, Brandon Graham picked up the ball for the Eagles and started to run with the ball. But, you know, in reality, when we saw it, even in slow motion, he barely had the ball in his hands before it slipped back out, and then Ramchek dives on the ball. Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, from Breeze's part from there, you know, they get the, they punt, their Eagles get the interception, and then, you know, you go back and they start that drive and they get that, you know, they get that fourth and one and they convert it. That's, you know, that's just, you know, that that's really the where the, the, from that point on, and they've got, that was when they got their third down, the Saints of the game, in, you know, basically with, with 12 minutes to go in the second quarter, they got their third, they got their third first down, you know, they controlled the football game throughout, had the ball 10 minutes or more, in each quarter, I thought it was a really a tribute to the Saints' mental toughness, their resiliency, and it proves again that they can play any style and win. They can play right-handed or left-handed, and I think that's why they're a dangerous team. And they're a dangerous team, too, we saw early because they took a shot. So when this game came out, Drew Brees runs on the field. It looks like uh, the Saints thought that they were going to run this thing back against this Eagles secondary, just like they did in Week 11. They take the deep ball shot to Ted, to Ted Ginn. Drew, Drew Brees underthrows it just, just by a tad, and LeBlanc makes a great play, and it kind of sets the tone in this game from the start. And you could tell that the Saints... 
Uh, they were reeling a bit because the Eagles, uh, Nick Foles comes down, he throws that beautiful pass where he just throws it into open space. Jordan Matthews runs underneath it like Hank Aaron uh, and makes a beautiful catch. And uh, it, it was a, uh, from the start, it just seemed like Philadelphia had everything rolling. The Saints needed something. They need some sort of momentum. And even when they called that fourth down play for Taysom Hill and they get it, you saw the reaction from the sideline. It seemed like it was a sigh of relief from the Saints and from Sean Payton and from Drew Brees and everyone in that building for the most part because uh, Kamara was not able to get anything really going early on. Didn't even have a touch on the first two drives in the game, uh, which was something to keep an eye on. Foles, meanwhile, starts the game 8 for 9, 113 yards and a touchdown uh, that Matthew touchdown I just mentioned. And the interior line with Fletcher Cox and Michael Bennett and all those guys were getting after Drew Brees and getting up the middle and making him, uh, like you said, play left-handed, which is not the way the Saints really wanted to play this game, especially uh, after what they were able to do uh, with Week 11. But let's talk about uh, as we get into the second half, as the Saints start to make that run and the guy to really point to and a guy that you know we have talked about on this podcast about what he is able to do talent-wise, and that is Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, uh, 12 catches in this game, 16 targets, 171 yards and a touchdown, and he had more yards than the entire Eagles offense at one point since the first quarter. I mean, I think they showed that stat where he had 100 yards receiving. The Eagles offense had 100 yards uh, in total itself. So you could just talk about what Michael Thomas, I mean, he goes by the moniker Can't Guard Mike, and he, sh- he showed on this day that when, when Michael Thomas and Drew Brees have that rapport going and, uh, you know, he's kind of just throwing him open, uh, they're a tough team to beat because Michael Thomas is by far one of the best receivers in the game, uh, and he showed it in this divisional game against uh, the Eagles, of course. Ted Ginn helps them, too. You know, Ted Ginn opens up a lot of things, and I think the fact that when you watch this game and you watch Drew Brees and you realize that he's only thrown seven passes over 30 yards all season, you know, and he hasn't been very effective down the field. And, and you know this. And so when you're watching this, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, it's all intermediate throws. Well, I think that's why Taysom Hill comes in and throws deep balls. And then Thomas comes in and he's so effective at winning the one-on-ones. And, you know, the Eagles were going through guys left and right, and they couldn't really keep anybody on the field. And I don't know if it's the Superdome turf or what, but I know this, the way the Saints play, and the way Drew Brees throws the football, it, they're fortunate that this game isn't in Kansas City or New England because Brees averages over nine yards per pass attempt at home, and there's no other place that he plays that he does that in terms of going outdoors earlier in the season. This time of the year, it's really benefits them. People talk about Jared Goff needs home field advantage. I, I would say Drew Brees at this point in his career needs home field advantage as well. And I think with Thomas and him, and then they get Kamara going, the other thing that struck me, Tate Frazier, was like I don't understand how the Cowboys watch the Saints' offense. And I know Jerry said that 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 the Rams' offense reminds him of the Cowboys, which we still think he needs to go to Pearl Vision Center. But <laughs> the reality here is, I mean, like how can't Zeke Elliott be the same player as Alvin Kamara? Like, why isn't he doing the same thing? Like, it's remarkable. Kamara's so good. Why isn't Zeke doing what Kamara's doing? Yeah, and it took a while for him to kind of get involved in the game a little bit, Alvin, in this one. But uh, over time, and Mark Ingram the same sort of way, I mean, he had that 36-yard run in the fourth quarter that kind of sealed it. But it it, it was... uh, it, it, they wore him down as the game went on, and you could sort of see uh, the writing on the wall with that Eagles defensive line. I mean, Fletcher Cox goes down at one point in this game, and you could just see how much they miss him on the interior, uh, and the Saints were able to get some things going. But you mentioned Breeze, and I, I think the two passes to point out were obviously the LeBlanc pick early in the game. Uh, they take the first deep shot. He underthrows it a bit. And then when Taysom Hill is wide open, he underthrows him on, on that deep ball. So you see those two moments, and you point out to the fact that, you know, being in a dome, he he has the, the, the everything is in his favor in a dome. You don't have to deal with the conditions. You don't have to deal with cold weather, all that sort of stuff. So if he's struggling with those sorts of things, then, uh, you know, obviously it means a lot to be playing at home. So that was something to keep an eye on. I do want to talk to you about uh, just Nick Foles and just the way he handled himself uh, as a quarterback leading this team again. He goes he goes and does, I mean, what Drew Brees usually does, which is, you know, on the QB sneak, stretching the ball up, getting the touchdown. And he, he just seemed cool, calm, composed the entire game. And then, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, he throws two picks. The second pick goes through the hands of Alshon Jeffrey on a hurry-up play. And that's what I want to ask you about. Why did they rush to the line to get a playoff before the two-minute warning there uh, late in that game, down six, as they're driving uh, to potentially go down and take the lead to win the game? You know, Tim Frazier, that one I don't understand. Like, to me, a couple things, I think, in the fourth-quarter drive. And I think, you know, Sean Payton was in one of those delicate situations. When he got when he got it at first and ten at the Eagle 33, and, you know, you know they're in field goal range. Right there, it's a 50-yarder. 
So his objective here at this point is we've got to get three plays where we can get, you know, eight yards. I'm not even worried about getting a first down. I'm worried about getting their timeouts taken away, and I'm worried about getting a first down because we know this. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows missed field goals are turnovers. So mm-hmm. if we miss this field goal, you know, that's not going to be really good. Just because we're in field goal range doesn't mean we're going to win this game. we got to be in makeable field goal range to win this game. And so, you know, the first and 10 call, Kamara left tackle barely gets a yard. Second and nine, he tries to throw a pass. It's just one yard. They get nothing going. They call timeout. And then this is where I think we got screwed by Fox because it's third and eight, and the Eagles call their second timeout, and, which is fine. They wanted to stop the clock at 3.08. But then the 25-second clock was going fast. And what happened in the formation was, what I saw from my living room watching the game was the Saints looked like they were going to run the ball and they were in a check-with-me-run situation. And the play clock kept pouring down that, that Breeze didn't really have time to check the play and he ran a shitty play into an overloaded front, which is typically not what Breeze does. And so now all of a sudden they went back to 4th and eleven, and you're just like, oh my gosh. And so like, oh shit, the 4th and eleven. what are you going to do here? And naturally, they kick the field goal, and they miss. And now I'm thinking, okay, it's the Eagle magic. You know, I, you know, this is it. They're going to win. Then they get the rough of the passer call. But I think that situation in the game, if you're a coach listening to this podcast, I think that's one of the real delicate that you don't practice that enough. You're, stop, you're trying to manage timeouts, but you're in field goal range. But let's be real honest. You're not in makeable field goal range, and you need those three to win. To put to ensure yourself it's an onside kick game, but if you fucking miss, you you run the risk of losing the game. And then the Eagles get the ball back, and they get the penalty on Davenport for uh, roughing the passer, and they're in perfect shot shape at two twenty seven to go, two twenty five to go, dead ball. Right? They run the ball, which is a, the right thing to do. Just start the ball moving. Smallwood gets no yards at all, right? And or Sproles, I think it was Sproles gets no yards at all. And so let the clock go to the two-minute warning. Like, what are we in a rush for? And I I was actually looking at my phone and reading tweets at that time, figuring they were never going to snap the ball. And they go ahead and snap the ball, and it gets intercepted. And and Millie's like, the ball got picked up. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like, how did this happen? Like, to me, sometimes teams play fast, and sometimes teams play stupidly and I think that was trying to play fast stupidly do you think it's one of those things too where it is a you know we're kind of we're gonna zig when they think we're gonna zag where you know Sean Payton and the Saints defense maybe they're a little bit tired maybe they are you know on we're, we're nipping on the heels we're making a drive here so if you do hurry up maybe you throw them off a little bit maybe maybe you make that defense you know have to make a call quickly because I mean Alshon was open it was a quick pass it was a hot route and uh, you know Nick Foles delivered it right on the money but uh, like you said when you're rushing and you're hurrying up I mean maybe it just throws you off I don't know if it was a, a predetermined decision going into it or if it was something that maybe Nick Foles and the sideline decided to do uh, just to get ahead of the two-minute warning because they were worried about time. But uh, regardless of you know what the decision, what, what the motivation behind the decision was, uh, it goes through the hands of Jeffrey. And ironically enough, it does feel like every time the Saints make some sort of run, you know, Tracy Porter, you point to, there's some sort of interception where, uh, you know, it just sort of works out where, you know, things may not be uh, what they seem to be. And, and uh, Nick Foles makes a pass and it goes through the hands of Jeffrey and uh, seals the game for the Saints. Lattimore runs and celebrates, does, uh, I don't know what they call it, but basically the Lambo Leap version in New Orleans to, <laughs> to celebrate the win, uh, which was good to see uh, if you were a New Orleans Saints fan. The, the one play I want to bring up to you, which I think a lot of people have uh, kind of wiped away, and a play that kind of set the tone that I think that was the turn other than the fake punt. That was the Nelson Aguilar play where, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but he he runs he's running a seam route and Nick Foles has pressure coming on yeah, the blitz yeah. and he and yeah. he throws it right on the money, but Aguilar hadn't turned his head around, so it goes right by him. Yeah, he got rid of it too soon. He didn't hold the ball. He should have. He needed to take the hit there, and he got rid of the ball way too soon. And Aguilar really wasn't. I mean, Aguilar was at the part of his route he wasn't expecting the football, and Foles got rid of the ball. But look, we know this about Foles. I think if you understand Foles really well, Foles is a quick read guy. He's going to read it and throw it. And if you give him his first option, he's effective. If you make him hold that ball a little longer than he wants, he's not going to scan the field. And I think that's what the Saints did on the first two drives. 
they didn't take away his first option very well. He was banging it out there. And then in the second drive, the, the third and fourth drives after that, he was a little bit uncomfortable reading it out. And when he gets in two minutes, it's a little easier just to throw it quickly. But I think that was the perfect situation. I mean, the Eagles couldn't convert third downs in the game. And, you know, if the Eagles just say that, that, that Jeffrey catches that pass, which he does nine times out of ten, and anybody who thinks that, you know, Jeffrey's the go, I mean, they wouldn't be where they were without Jeffrey. Absolutely. I mean, that's just a fact. Yep. I mean, Jeffrey turned that, I mean, he made it all happen. But that being said, you know, Foles is on the, on the base salary next year. He's got a $20 million. He can opt out. Now, the Eagles can basically opt them back in if they pay $2 million. Now, the third day of the league year, that, that contract becomes guaranteed. But Foles can then opt out himself if he pays back the Eagles the $2 million. So it's one of those where you know he's going to be a free agent because there's no, he can opt out of it unless they can come to some kind of agreement on doing a deal, which I can't think they could. And I think probably Nick Foles needs to go somewhere else to, to start his new career because clearly Wentz is the best player and Wentz's cap number next year is only going to be around $8 million. And that's the perfect opportunity for them to continue to add talent to their team as they build this thing going forward. I mean, the Eagles should not have any cap issues. I mean, Jason Peters is on the books for $10 million. You know, whether he comes back or not, you know, they've got a lot of guys that they can kind of weed through starting with Foles. So I think that, that that's something to consider. But, you know, I think the magic ran out on Philly on that one. It was just an unfortunate thing. And, and as good as, as an opportunity as Philly had late in that game, they really had no business being in that game considering the fact that they only had the ball 22 minutes the whole day. Yeah, and I, I want to point out, because that was kind of the big uh, narrative coming out of this game, what's going to happen with Nick Foles? What's the next move for the Philadelphia Eagles? Will they keep Foles? Will they continue to roll it with Wentz? Uh, is there a chance they could tag, could they, could they franchise tag Foles and then try to trade him? I mean, could they make that decision together? I know he is so close with you know that Philadelphia team and has such a rapport with everyone there. Is there something where you know he could work with the team to get value back for himself and then they could maybe trade him to a landing spot he preferably wants to go to? Is that possible? Uh, you know, I think once he if once once he opts out, if the Eagles, if the if he buy it, once the contract becomes void, I don't believe the Eagles can then franchise him. Okay. Uh, once it becomes void, then he becomes a free agent, and they have no rights to him. Okay. And if he opts out, you know, on the third day of the league year, if they let it go, it's all guaranteed, which it wouldn't be. But I think, look, when you really break this thing down, you know. Everything that Wentz did was better than everything that Wentz did this year was better than Foles, except for Foles has this unique ability to create leadership and a following. I mean, Foles was better. Foles was not as good as Wentz on yards per attempt. He was not as good at touchdown percentage. He was lower on 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 uh, on interception percentage. You know, he was Wentz was sacked thirty one times. Foles was sacked nine times in his five games. So does he get rid of the ball quicker? Sure. You know, the quarterback rate, I mean, it, Wentz is better. So to me, at some point, I think the Eagles, you know, it's great to have a great backup quarterback, but I think they have other things they need to fix on their team. And I think it's really, they need to give this team over to Wentz without any of those questions that Foles is in the background. Because I think if you bring Foles back to Philadelphia and Wentz has a bad game, these people around this town, they're going to want, they're going to want Foles in the game. They're mm-hmm. going to, you know, you create your own problem. Yeah, and people start pointing fingers and saying, you know, who should be the guy who, you know, who deserves to be the guy based on, you know, postseason runs and obviously what we saw at the end of the season for the Eagles. But uh, after the game, Carson Wentz, uh, you know, had some nice things to say. Basically, it was like, we are brothers. Uh, you know, Nick Foles and I, we both get along very well. Uh, we know that we're both going to be successful, whatever our next venture is. Um, and Nick Foles came out and, you know, this is a guy that contemplated, you know, retiring at one point, And he said, I want to lead a team. I want to be a leader. And that goes back to what you were talking about as far as the locker room. The Eagles said their locker room was so great with Nick Foles because, you know, people kind of rally behind him. He sort of, he, he embodies the underdog thing where going into every game, people are like, well, Nick Foles, you know, he's a liability, but instead he continued to be uh, the one that kept the, the wheels churning for that team. So um, we'll see what happens with Foles. We'll keep an eye on that. And obviously the $2 million thing is, is sort of the, the big talking point where he would pay back his $2 million uh, to then figure out where he wants to go after. Um, this is definitely Carson Wentz's team. You can just tell 
by the way the rest of the team handled it. Everyone uh, expects and suspects that he will be the guy moving forward. So uh, it is what it is in Philadelphia. The the magic is done for now, but uh, Carson Wentz will hopefully be healthy and ready for uh, the next season and the Saints move on. And we will move on to the next game to talk about. And this we're going to go to the AFC for this one. We got the New England Patriots uh, taking on the Los Angeles Chargers. This is something that Phil Rivers will probably want to forget. Um, but for the most part, Tom Brady, very excited, said after the game that everyone thinks that they suck. But regardless, they're going to continue to come out and keep playing the way that they are. Finishes this one, Brady, 34 for 44, 343 yards and a touchdown. Chargers were pretty much out of this game from the jump. Uh, we saw... You know, we talked a lot about Rob Gronkowski not being able to get separation as a receiver, but Lombardi, he proved the value that he has as a blocker in the run game, what he was able to open up holes for Sony Michelle in this game, really set the tone. And this was power uh, going up against speed, and the Patriots' power won this game pretty much from the jump. Yeah, I mean, look, when Belichick took the toss and said, look, I'm going to, you know, I'll take the ball, he clearly made the statement, we're playing from in front. And I think when you look at the the landscape of the the, the the divisional round, you know, the Chiefs are up 24 to 7 at the half. The Rams are up 20 to 7 at the half. The Patriots are up 35 to 7 at the half. The only game that was close at the half was the Eagles Saint game, which ended up being the best game. But the Patriots made it very clear. They wanted the Chargers to play from behind. And I think that anybody who thought that the Chargers offensive line was any good learned that it's not. Because we said on GM Street on Friday that Belichick was going to put flowers over his right guard, which he did. He put them on Schoenfeld and, and, and their right tackle, Tevi. Both guys got exposed. Rivers got hit way too much. And if you're Tom Telesco or you're Anthony Lynn and you're flying back home after you've watched this tape, basically what Belichick did to you was tell you all the problems with your team. He basically said, here's where you suck and here's what you need to fix. And if you guys want to go home and say you had a great year, we really feel good about where we are and not make any changes, you're going to get your ass to speed again next year. Or if you want to go back and say, you know what, we really suck at right guard. We're not very good at right tackle. Our left tackle's on borrowed time. we got to fix this offensive line, and we got to fix, we got to change some schemes. Because I think the other thing that was pretty clear in this game was Josh McDaniels just outcoached Gus Bradley. The one thing about the Chargers, the scheme that they run, and I talked about it on GM Street, I talked about betting across America, the show I do on weekends, was that they don't adjust. They This is who we are. They're, they're proud of it. This is what we do. We do our thing. You know, they, they wear it as a, as a signature on their chest. This is who we are. Well, you know, what you are in the playoffs, it's about adjustment. If you don't adjust, you ain't going to win. And that's what the Chargers couldn't do. And that's why, to me, and, and you know, and I, because I do that betting show, I mean, everybody was betting the Chargers. Tate Frazier, I mean, it was unbelievable. I'm like, you're giving your hard-earned money to Anthony Lynn. I mean, seriously. Like, what have they done to deserve you? I know they were 7-1 and one on the road, but we're talking about a second road trip. We're talking about, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't get it. But you know, to me, they kicked their ass for a half, and that's all they needed. And, you know, Bosa didn't really want to play. Ingram couldn't play. They got rid of the football. They beat, her, they beat them up, and they wore them down. And if you just if you just started right from this game, right from the jump, I mean, they score on their first four possessions. The Patriots, it's the first time they've ever done that uh, in Patriots history <laughs> to open a game. Uh, so they go they go four touchdowns on first four possessions. So that's you know they're up twenty eight to seven. We're about midway through the first quarter or through the second quarter. They they have about twenty first downs at this point. They ended up converting thirty uh, first downs in the game, seven of fourteen on third down. Brady was pretty much picking them apart, doing exactly uh, what you would expect them to do against the. A zone, like you said, that they they were not making any sort of adjustment at all. And Tom Brady, uh, if you just let him sit back there and pick you apart, he's going to go vintage Tom, and that's what he did in this game. And uh, it, it was pretty much, despite the final score being forty-one to twenty-eight, and Phil Rivers, uh, you know, making some plays in garbage time, it, it was pretty much over as soon as I said, as soon as you were in that second quarter, it felt like uh, it was it was well uh, out of reach for most uh, most of the Chargers fans in the world who who were hoping they could bring something and, and draw up some sort of uh, comeback. But uh, was there anything else that you, in this game that really stood out to you? Because uh, I know Tom Brady, like I said, I mentioned after the game, he said that everyone thinks that they suck. But they, they really showed that they can out outwill and ha- they had the physical power. And, you know, that seemed like something that p- we pointed to as a problem with them when they had to go against speed. But it, it did not seem that way in this game. They completely overpowered the Chargers throughout. Yeah, and I, and I thought as a coach, if you're watching that game, I think it's a great lesson on Canadian football. I thought what McDaniels did was play Canadian football, yet controlled the clock. You know, I preach about playing CFL football 
get first downs and two downs, stay out of third down. They were in 14 third downs in the game. They converted seven of them. Most of them in the second half, they didn't. They kind of messed around. But for the most part, they got bored. But for the most part, they played Canadian football and controlled the clock. And they had the ball 38 minutes and 20 seconds. Phillip Rivers only had it 21 minutes. You know, he could only run 63 plays. He was trying desperately to do it. So it, there's a way. Like, this is the recipe. This game plan recipe will be the same one. Well, it'll be different how they do it, but it'll be the same one. Control the ball, stay out of third down, or stay out of situations that you can't really manage on the road, and play Canadian football. And I think they showed you what you're talking about. This was pace and tempo combined. It's a really a valuable lesson as a coach to understand it. People think all the time, you want to play fast, that means you don't have the ball. I mean, that's the Chiefs. They play fast. The fat guy at the buffet line, they got to eat. But the Patriots play deliberately fast, and I think there's a difference. Yeah, and I have to point out, too, I mean, the Patriots have struggled against the run this year, but in this game, they look like a totally different defense against the run. I mean, they limited Melvin Gordon, gets just 15 yards on nine carries. He wasn't able to really mu- you know, make much of a difference in the passing game, if at all. I mean, I think he only had two targets in this game. So, I mean, what was the difference just from what was Flores doing in this game? Obviously, Brian Flores is a guy now being talked about as the Dolphins head coaching candidate, but what was Flores able to do with this defense to make them look so distinctly different from what we saw, you know, let's just say week 15? I mean, they, they just look totally uh, in tune with one another and knew what was going on and they had all the gaps protected and everything hold up so uh, it, it was just wild to see that defense play at such a high level yeah I mean I think they had a good read on it plus let's face it when you score as much as you score and you get behind mm-hmm. you know the pressure becomes on the offense we got to get first downs and you know running the ball doesn't always necessarily get you back into it you know and if you get stuffed and they and they did a great job of setting the edge and, and took away the runs that Gordon wanna run, wanted to run so Look, I think Brian Ford is going to be a great coach for Miami. I think it'll be a good hire. Uh, and I think this is a good indication of the things that they're able to do with lesser players than they typically have had, but they did it really well. Trey Flowers is a good player over the guards, and they'll find the matchups. I mean, that's the one thing the Patriots do. They tell you who you are and what they think of you by what they do with their personnel. And if you're not ready for it, you're going to be in trouble. And one last thing on this, I mean, I know Brady and, and Belichick, they're now, you know, buying into the underdog underdog role a little bit because, you know, you know, people have continued to d- dismiss this team. But do you think this is one of those situations where it's a rumor situation where, you know, everything might be falling apart, you know, all over, but you do have all these talented people and they're going to make this one great last run together because it does feel like the, the stars are aligning a little bit, especially when you see uh, the, the BPI and all these other projectors saying that the Patriots are the least likely team to make the Super Bowl at this point, uh, despite what we know about Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, because uh, it, it does seem, despite all the noise around this, they, they are all together. And it's almost a rallying, rallying call at this point that, you know, people, nobody believes in us, you know. Uh, yeah, no, it it's goes. Good, I mean, it's a powerful message that he's going to sell. You know that. And I think that, that you know, look, it, it's a little bit for the love of the game with Kevin Coster. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the guy goes out there and, and, and uh, Billy Chappell pitches the the no-hitter in his last game at Yankee Stadium. I mean, this is it. I mean, you know, whatever you got left, don't leave it in the desk. You know, let it all out. I think that's what they're going to do. And look, this round will be tough because the Chiefs can match them point for point. But the Chiefs' defense could also give up point for point as well. So I would never rule them out. You know, last time they went to Kansas City in 2014, the franchise was declared dead on arrival at Methodist Hospital, and the Chiefs blew us out on Monday night TV and everybody said it was over and here it is 2019 five years later and their eighth consecutive conference championship game you know I mean it's really remarkable I mean eight consecutive conference cha- think about it for eight that's better than the Maggio's 56 game history it really is especially when you think about the turnover that we see every single year in the NFL um, it honestly makes no sense at all that they continue to do this um, and Brady and Belichick especially those two guys uh, conti- continue to keep it rolling McDaniels had a great game plan in that one we're going to take a quick break here we're going to come back we're going to do, do the other two games from the weekend talk about uh, the Rams Cowboys and obviously uh, hit on the Chiefs and the Colts and then we're going to wrap this thing up and talk about uh, a few things around the league uh, a few storylines talk about Adam Gase and his uh, introduction to the New York Jets quick break 
Quick break to get a word from our sponsor, Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these amazing hotels to help them sell these unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you've got to try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they even give short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms actually look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can also book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. I will tell you this. I was in North Carolina, and I was staying in different cities in North Carolina. Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Hotel Tonight. Made it all happen. It was easy. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the Hotel Tonight app now. Back to GM Street. All right, and we're back. Uh, the final two games, uh, the divisional weekend. Obviously, the, the first two we talked about were the 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 big headlines. You know, the the two games that kind of you know caught a lot of attention, a lot of people stirring and talking. But obviously, being out in Los Angeles, I saw a lot of Cowboys fans here. I saw a lot of Rams fans very excited about how everything played out. Rams win that one, thirty to twenty-two. C.J. Anderson was the 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 underdog hero in this game. Um, it, it was the one that really showed that. You know, they have another little, they have more juice in the backfield outside of Todd Gurley when you look at that Rams team and what they were able to do. Jared Goff, uh, you know, was pretty inconsistent in this game, but made some nice throws, but a little up and down in this one, but was able to find a way to win. Uh, Jerry's team falls out of favor. Uh, they lose this one by eight points. And it did seem like the Rams kind of had control of this one throughout. But just from the, the onset looking at this game, Lombardi, what was your big takeaway from the Rams and the Cowboys? You know, I, I mean, everybody wants the next Sean McVay, and I thought that Aaron Cromer, the offensive line coach, did an incredible job of of coaching this run game, of taking you know away the ability of the of the Rams to stunt and move and their movement. And I thought he did. But the Rams ran about ten plays. I mean, and the Rams basically didn't even let Jared Goff have to do anything. You know, mm-hmm. and I thought that the Rams' offensive line dominated. I think they did exactly what they had to do in the game. And you got to give credit to the line coach. I mean, everybody wants everybody wants to hire the next Sean McVay. And here's a guy who's a line coach. He's been a head coach. And he was the interim coach in New Orleans. And he will be the huge difference, I think, in this game as we face the, the game. He knows the Saints. He understands Sean McVay. He understands Sean Payton. And I think he knows how to what, what's going to happen in the in the, the with the Superdome and handling the crowd noise, all that. I thought Cromer did an incredible job with uh, with the game. I really do. I thought it was really really well done. So that was my take on it. I thought that it was one of those where they were very, you know, they managed the game. They didn't let the game get away from them. And, you know, the clapper, you know, just, you know, runs the same freaking fourth down play that he ran <laughs> earlier in the game. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that? How do you do that? And Elliot converted the first two. So, and he obviously is the back that you rely on. He got 20 carries in this game for 47 yards and a touchdown. Uh, that the the third time that you're talking about. I mean, the Rams put literally, I think, every player they had in the box, um, just begging the Cowboys to try to do something different, or at least maybe a play action or something like that. But they ran Elliot right into the teeth uh, of that defense, and obviously the Rams get the big stop there. So. A lot of people were pointing to that as a problem, and and that is why the the Scott Linehan talk has become uh, you know ever growing as we as we move into uh, the news week where people you know continue to talk about the headlines. So I, I want to ask you about the two quarterbacks in this game because I think both of them showed some signs of uh, you know maybe. Uh, some trepidation about moving forward with them. Goff, obviously, I mentioned struggled in this game. I mean, you can tell that he misses the security blanket of a Cooper Cup uh, on his side. And Dak Prescott had some really bad incompletions. I mean, the, some that we saw, you know, earlier in the season in week three. Uh, I remember that Panthers game, he underthrew a lot of balls. Um, but uh, when you talk about extensions that are coming up for those guys, I mean, both of them are obviously going to get him just because of the success of the team. But they did struggle in this game, and it, it, they did not inspire much hope if you were buying into the stock of those two quarterbacks, right? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think I think Dak, I think they, I think they need to go and watch Mississippi State tape. And I think if I'm Dallas, I think I got to bring somebody in to help me, you know, find a way to get Dak where I can utilize his skill as a runner and utilize his skill on the move and. You know, and and do that, and I think the Rams are all in on Jared Goff. I think the Rams see Jared Goff, and we're going to find out about Jared Goff this weekend. Crowd noise. If the Saints put any pressure on him, see how he handles it. 
it's a big game. I think this is a big game for golf, whether you're going to extend him or not, because you're going to find out, can, can McVeigh keep protecting him? He did. He's done a great job so far. But when he's gotten hit on the road, whether Chicago or somewhere else, it was a problem. So I think this is going to be a big game. But no, the Rams are going to pay golf. I don't doubt that one bit. I think they're definitely going to, because the alternative is where are we going? Like Where are we going to get a guy? For me, if you have Sean McVeigh, I would pay him. We've talked about that. The Cowboys, I, I, you know, Dak is the hard part for me to understand because Dak, I don't think they give Dak enough of a chance to be successful. I think they're too predictable offensively. And I know that Jerry said that if the Clapper lost his job, you know, there'd be five teams lined up to hire him. You know, look, he also said that the, the Cowboys offense was similar to the Rams Prohibition Center. You know, do I think five teams would hire Jason Garrett as the head coach? Wow. Wow. Maybe I could see a GM who would basically want to hire Jason to just do it. But I really want to know. And I'm, this is going to be one of my pet peeves this offseason. I want to actually know what Garrett does during the game. Class. I never see him talking in the headset. Mm-hmm. I never see him talk. I mean, maybe Cousin Sal, you can ask him. I never see him talking in the headset. I never see him directing traffic. I never see him actually doing anything but just stand there and watching the game and yell maybe at the officials, but I never see him covering his mouth to talk to Linehan or suggest. So, like, I'm actually, what do you get when you when you hire Jason Garrett? And I'm sure Jerry's going to pay him eight or nine. But I really want to know what you get. I really want to know. Well, here's what you get, Lombardi. We might as well talk about it now. You're, you're going to get premature proclamations about a staff that's not going to change, even though you're not sure if the staff is going to change because the owner, Jerry Jones, also says he's not sure if the staff's going to change. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, the clapper himself went out to the world and said uh, they would not be making significant changes on the coaching staff in regards to the offensive coordinator, Scott Linehan, who we brought up a little bit earlier in this, talking about, you know, the problems with Dak. He says, you know, no significant no significant changes would come. And then we have the executive vice president, son of Jerry Jones, Stephen Jones. Uh, he comes out and he said, it's a, it's a little too early to speculate on such matters. So he kind of, you know, pulls him back a little bit. And then Jason Garrett goes back to the podium after making those comments and then having Stephen Jones walk him back. He goes back to the podium, uh, <laughs> says that he had no idea what his answer was earlier that morning, uh, made it clear that it's not his team. So he has no idea what he said. He said it's Jerry Jones's team. He ultimately has the final say. And uh, Jerry Jones went on uh, 105.3 FM, the fan down in Dallas. And uh, I'll give you some quotes here. He said, I sound a bit irritated and I understand that. I like the direction that we're going in. Anybody that tells you there's going to be a change out there, they don't know because I don't know this morning and I'm the last say. Uh, we do know that Jerry will have the last say there. He, he talked about, like you said, that, you know, uh, the Clapper would have, you know, five other teams that would hire him in a heartbeat. Um, but he didn't, never said Scott Linehan's name. Uh, in in this whole back and forth about what's going to happen with this team, so that does not inspire much hope for you know what what's going to happen on the offensive side of the football. But overall, it does seem like Jerry is is tinkering with the idea of making some big changes on the offensive side of the football, depending on what opens up to him. And uh, you know, Jason Garrett's just going to go ahead and nod his head and do whatever Jerry tells him to do, per usual, right? There, there you go. You know, and you know, to get somebody to do that, I think it's probably worth seven million. Yeah, it's not a bad deal. You, know, I think so. you can run everything. It's not a bad deal. And, you know, a lot of people after this one were pointing out about uh, Jason Garrett smiling, being a good sport. So maybe they, they pulled him in for sportsmanship, Lombardi. That's all we can say. It's good to have good sports in sports. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, I, I think that you know, after the game, a lot of people were talking about how gracious he was. And, I mean, maybe that's just his personality. You know, maybe he is just really that way. I, I mean, for me, the, the, there's such a, you know, when you lose the finality of it all, it's hard. It's hard to be gracious and giving and understanding, especially the way you lose. I'm not sure that the Cowboys, from a chess standpoint, played their best game. I think the Rams did. I think if McVay was coaching the Cowboys and the Clapper was coaching the Rams, I ask you, Tate Frazier, who wins that game? I would say uh, D-Town Dallas. I think they're going to take that one home. So. Uh, and, and that's sort of what you're dealing with, but we do have the contract. I, I think he's just happy he got the contract extension. You know, he did enough to earn that. So, uh, you know, let him ride off into the sunset into the offseason and, uh, you know, get ready to meet his new offensive coordinator uh, come June. So 
The final game of the week we have, we have the Kansas City Chiefs taking on the the Indianapolis Colts. Probably the it was a game that just sort of kind of went by the wayside. I mean, the Chiefs play outplayed the Colts uh, pretty much from the jump in this game. Andrew Luck struggled a little bit with some accuracy in this game. Uh, Pat Mahomes made some great throws per usual. Uh, and then the Chiefs defense just played at a very, very high level um, despite missing uh, Eric Berry. Um, but but it, it is one of those things where the Chiefs dominated. They looked like the team that we thought they were as the number one seed. And, and they came out, and Damian Williams was was a real big spark for this team in the running game uh, with Spencer Ware out. So just looking at the Chiefs, did they kind of live up to the billing of who we thought they were? I, I was shocked by the Chiefs. You know, I mean, going into that game, you, you could you have ever thought that the Colts would not convert a third down in the game? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really remarkable. Like, how could this even happen? And yet they didn't. And so I just, I mean, that game was hard. I think there has to be a conversation about, A, Andrew Luck playing in bad weather. I think Andrew Luck, you know, Jared Goff gets criticized for being in bad weather, not playing well. I think it's time to have that Andrew Luck conversation as well because when you look at him and you saw him throw that football, I mean, even the the, the announcer said the first thing they said when they were watching the pregame warm-up, they said, hey, I just don't think Andrew Luck threw the ball very effectively in pregame warm I forget who it was who said it. Oh, it was uh, the NBC crew. I think uh, Chris, Christopher Sims said it. Mm. You know, and so when you look at him over his career and you, you watch him play and temperature less than 40 degrees, he's he has played five games in under 40 degrees, 6.1 yards per attempt, nine touchdowns, two interceptions, you know, 84.4 quarterback rating, really can't make any play. I mean, to me, those are pedestrian-like numbers considering the fact that typically he's above seven yards per attempt. So he's a full yard shorter when he plays in cold weather. To me, I think that's the conversation. If I'm the Colts and I'm Chris Ballard and I've seen Andrew Luck now play in Kansas City, we got to avoid going there. We're going to have to We're going to have to win. we got to be the number one seed to give us the best chance because I'm not sure Luck can handle this weather. And yeah. it proved on. I mean, Ebron can't catch in the cold. We know that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the Colts practiced in the cold. I know this. The Chargers, from my understanding, they had about a 20-minute walkthrough on Saturday outside. And that's what they thought will get them used to the cold. Good luck. Dome teams and teams on the West Coast that are traveling to these cold weather places, uh, it does not seem to fare well when you talk about the uh, the impact of the weather. And you talk about uh, just moments that kind of set the tone in a game. I mean, on the opening drive of this one, Eric Ebron drops that third down pass, unfortunately, uh, for Colts fans. And and from there, that kind of set the tone of the day because that had been the secret to success for them for the past few weeks, uh, How they when they had been making this long run. is you know Obviously, the third down conversions, Eric Ebron had been playing uh, at a very high level. Inman had been playing really well. And and as you looked around, it, it just didn't seem like Luck was able to find anything. And then D Ford, the big strip sack on him on luck in this game so uh just little moments like that and when you talk about uh just the pressure to hold a football uh and what it takes you know the strength to hold a football in the cold weather how much more uh it takes on your hand and you're a guy like Andrew Luck who's coming back from the shoulder stuff and and working through it this year some some of that may come into play I'm not sure but you know that that was given out as possibly uh, a reason why he was struggling a little bit in the cold weather but Patrick Mahomes was not struggling in the Chiefs win this one pretty easily 31-13 no doubt. I mean, it was a walk, a walk. It was easy. I thought Kelsey, to me, you know, my appreciation for Travis Kelsey just went way up. I thought Travis Kelsey was outstanding in the game. I think his ability to catch the ball in cold weather was remarkable. I think he's going to continue to be a factor. And I think that factor is is going to show itself up this Sunday where it's supposed to be Arctic-like, sub-Arctic-like temperature. So, uh, you know, but he, to me, is that he's, as great as Hill is, and I think Hill's certainly great, I think Kelsey and Hill, that combination, it really makes them deadly. And I think that's that's going to be Belichick's task number one is can we get Kelsey handled and can we handle him and can we stop him when he's going to make a play? The guy caught the ball in bad weather like I've never seen. He earned his McDonald's commercial. I will say that uh, he has been playing pretty well for this team, uh, pretty consistently for quite some time. Obviously, he knows how what it takes to win a Super Bowl. His brother uh, Jason goes and wins the Super Bowl last year. We get that, but Sammy Watkins is the one that I feel like Bill Belichick will point to and say, "Make Sammy Watkins beat us." Right? I mean, he has that that fumble yeah, in the exactly. second half. I, I feel like that is the person, that is the player that he's like Pat Mahomes. You can throw it to Sammy Watkins. Yes, exactly. We'll take our luck with him. We will do the preview of all uh, the championship games that are coming up uh, this weekend on Friday. Um, One more thing before we get out of here, Lombardi, I want to talk about quickly uh, the Adam Gase uh, announcement that he will be 
um, the head coach of the the New York Jets, and and this was you know there were some raised eyebrows a little bit that that came out of here. Some 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 fans weren't so excited about this, but uh, CEO Chris Johnson comes out. He said, "I get it. Part of it is I have to earn their trust. We just had a couple of down years. I have to earn their trust again. I think they will see. If not right now, they will see, they will see pretty soon that it is a very great hire." Um, for people that didn't see this, Adam Gase, he was all over Twitter. There was a taco video that went out with him staring at a ta- an imaginary taco. Uh, he was moving his eyes all over the place. Yeah. Um, but we talked about the reputation of Adam Gase and, and how the, the league has viewed him over the years. And people really have bought into what he's been able to do as far as building out quarterbacks. Uh, we, you know, we saw it with Cutler. Uh, we, we, we saw it with obviously Peyton Manning was the big calling card for him. But but just looking at the hire, looking at the Jets, looking at you know his familiarity with the AFC East, what were your first takeaways just bringing Gase into that building? Building and what he'll be able to do for a guy like Sam Darnold. Well, I think that's going to be the key, right? And there was a lot of talk that he was going to hire Greg Williams as defensive coordinator. Now, Greg Williams, remember, Greg Williams and Adam Gase's father-in-law, Joe Vitt, were together at the Saints. Joe Vitt was the interim head coach who got suspended, who then named Aaron Cromer, became the coach. And then, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. So whether he hires him or not, that hasn't been announced. I'm sure Greg Williams is checking his mailbox frequently to discuss uh, uh to discuss, uh, uh, you know, all the situations, but uh, the my sense of it is is if he can get Sam Donald in the offense turn around, I think you know the second time around, I I, I think it's always going to be better as a coach, and I think they got to improve the offense. The Miami offense struggled last year, but when Albert when they had Albert Wilson in there, I think he was really effective. So I, they're going to have to get some skilled players. I mean, the, the reality of the New York Jets are they're not very talented offensively. They're going to have to improve their offensive line. And Gates has got his work cut out for him, even though Miami wasn't a great deal. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just think to me it's going to take a lot more. It's going to take a really good draft. they got $100 million to spend in offseason before they actually can figure out what they're doing. Can I also uh, point out, because this was a report that came out, that Matt Rule, coach of the Baylor Bears, uh, was a guy that they wanted to bring in to uh, New York to take over the Jets. But apparently there was a disagreement, and this was refuted by uh, Johnson, but there there was a report that Jets management did not want Rule to have the rights to hire his uh, coordinators. He was just going to come in as the the head coach, and then they would fill it out. So what is that process like? Does this happen a lot with organizations? If you bring in a young guy like a Matt Rule who – you know, you, you can kind of tell him what to do. Is that something that usually occurs? And then you elect other guys like a Greg Williams to come in to be the, you know, or Vance Joseph or whoever it may be to be the defensive coordinator or, or bring in an offensive coordinator with a bigger name. Does that happen often? Well, I think what ha- it does because most GMs now want to hear about the staff and we talk about culture, but nobody talks about the culture of the staff, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to piece together a staff, you don't always necessarily create culture because who's doing the hiring, right? So if you're, if you're Matt Rule, and you're at Baylor University, you hire everybody. Everybody who works in football works for Matt Rule. And so, and then Matt Rule's got a six-year contract that I'm sure a really good number that's fully guaranteed. Why would he leave that job to come work for the Jets and then have Mike McKagan tell him who to hire? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Either you want him, either you're buying Matt Rule, or you're not. Either you're doing that or you're not. Either you believe that he can put the – why would you think he could put together? Why would you think he couldn't put together a good staff? Like why? Like really? I mean, we learned this in Cleveland in '91. We went through it, and that's why Belichick has so many people there that uh, that that are on the staff that that are young because he's training them. I mean, look, everybody who works at Alabama complains about how hard it is to work at Alabama. Well, the reason it's so hard to work at Alabama is most of the people that come into Alabama have never been around the program before. So they never worked their way through the program. And so it's all foreign to them and it's difficult and it's challenging. You know, whereas Belichick takes the other course. He takes the place where he's going to develop coaches from within. So that's all they know. That's all they're used to. And, you know, that's the way to do it. Whereas the Jets, they want to hear, well, you're going to hire this guy. And that rule's like, look, I got a really good job. Like, I don't need to become the head coach of the New York Jets. Mm -hmm. When somebody wants to tell me they want me and they trust my judgment on everything I do, then I'll be willing to listen. And I think it's, to me, it's just ridiculous. Like, you know, and sometimes, I mean, we've seen it often. I mean, look at Frank Wright. I mean, he gets a job because Josh McDaniels turns it down. You know, it ends up being a really good hire for him. So sometimes the guy you think you get is supposed to be a great coach. Perhaps he's not even. 
Yeah, there's no such thing as a second choice. Sometimes it's just how it always works out. Uh, and then this is my favorite quote from the whole thing about uh, Adam Gase moving forward with the Jets. This is from uh, the, the CEO, Johnson. Again, he said, to paraphrase Wayne Gretzky, which is always a good way to start a sentence, uh, he's coaching to where football is going. And so Lombardi, <laughs> before I have to ask you, where where is football going? I don't know. I, th- I think what he's <laughs> saying is he's coaching it offensively through the quarterback. They're going to the NHL? And- uh, yeah, maybe, and, and maybe the spread attack, I have no idea. But, you know, look, these press conferences, they say they're not there to win the press conference, and then they say something like that, and you're like, well, why are you saying that if you're not there? Like, let's just say, you know what, give him a chance to see what he can do and go from there. Let's just see what he can do. And one last note I have, and I, I forgot to bring him up, but Darius Leonard, uh, the rookie linebacker for the Colts, had a great game in that Kansas City game. It was sort of overshadowed, had 14 tackles, uh, also had a fumble recovery in that one. And then after the game, the Colts GM came out and, and they were asking him uh, you know, about sort of the situation moving forward with the team. And he said, there's a difference in the NFL from being good and being great. And they're trying to be great. And right now, you know, they understand that they are just at that good level. And I, I think that's a good way to view it, just coming from a, a GM perspective. I mean, we may be set. We may have the right pieces, but uh, we want to be uh, something more than that. We want to be a championship contender. Uh, and, and that was what came out of the Colts camp after they lost that game to, to the Chiefs. No doubt. And I mean, that's the challenge. I mean, if you're the Cleveland Browns, you, you got to forget about last year. And you got to start from scratch and you got to build on that. And if you're the Indianapolis Colts, you got to forget last year and start from there. It's the teams that go back. It's like climbing the mountain. You, you can't start at the middle of the mountain. you got to go all the way back. And the teams that do that have a chance to win. If not, you know they're going to be wondering what happened to their season, much like whether it's the Steelers, really much like Jacksonville. And Freddie Kitchens came out and he said, 7-8-1 is not good enough for us in Cleveland. And uh, we're trying to win the Lombardi Trophy. So uh, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, that is good to hear. Uh, probably not so good to hear if you're Huey, Huey Headlines, but you know we'll leave it at that. Where is Huey? We, Huey hasn't landed yet, has he? No, but where in the world is Huey Headlines? Uh, please let us know. Please find him. Please write a story. Please share it with us here on GM Street. Um, we are always ready to hear stories about the great Hugh Jackson. But um, regardless, Lombardi, the, you know, we got a great divisional weekend, weekend wrapped up. We got uh, the championship games coming up. We're going to be back on Friday. We're going to give you a full preview. Lombardi will give you give you his picks for those games. Uh, any last thoughts before we get out of here? I think the Gary Kubiak hire for the Minnesota Vikings mm. is a really good hire. I think Gary coming in, I think that's the perfect guy for what they want to do. He can run some play. It's perfect for Kirk Cousins. Install that offense, and I think with, with – Stefanski, if they teach him that, run that zone scheme, I think it'll be really good. I think that's a really good hire. I think right now there's a lot of stuff going on here in terms of hiring and firing between these assistants, and I think that's a really good one. I think that scheme fits in perfectly. And how about my man Nathaniel Hackett? He goes from coaching Blake Bortles to coaching Aaron Rodgers. You talk about hitting a lottery ticket? Holy shit, right? That's a career builder. That he, in five yeah. years, he could be the Jets head coach at this rate. You know, yeah. go, go no, coach. Hey, he there called, you go. hey, look, if Nathaniel Hackett calls three first downs in a row, he's probably going to be a head coach next week. You know, that's all it's going to take. That's all it's going to take. You get three first downs called in a row. You're a head coaching candidate. That's all it takes. That's all it takes these days. Uh, we will keep an eye as the chess pieces move around the NFL with all the different uh, coaching hires and and, and fallout from uh, certain situations as teams get eliminated. But again, we will be back on Friday. This has been another edition of GM Street, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. We appreciate everyone sticking with us and listening uh, as we move through the playoffs, and we will see you soon. See you on Friday. Thank you, Tate Frazier. Thanks again to Hotel Tonight by showing you top-rated hotels with unsold rooms. Hotel Tonight makes it easy to book your stay at an amazing rate. And even though their name's Hotel Tonight, you can book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the Hotel Tonight app now.